You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Well, Cities Church, welcome to the book of Leviticus. My goal this morning in this sermon is to simply introduce this book to you. I just want to introduce some of the major themes in the book. But before I do that, I want to tell you three reasons why we're preaching the book of Leviticus. And then before even I get there, I want us to pray again and ask together ask a blessing uh, on this series from the Lord. So pray with me. Um, Father in heaven, thank you for your church universal. Thank you for all the Christians at all times and in all places that you have saved by your grace in Christ. Thank you, Father, also for your church local, for the brothers and sisters of this time at this place. And thank you that it is your word, your word that has created us and brought us together. This morning we confess that we are here because of you. And in this moment, by your grace, Father, we seek to be humbled before your word. Please open our hearts to receive the good that you intend for us today and over the next several weeks in the book of Leviticus. Bless us, Father, in this series. Bless us, we ask, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, so why are we preaching the book of Leviticus? I got three reasons why, and if you've been a part of Cities Church for a while, I'm guessing that these three reasons will probably uh, make sense to you, but if you're a guest with us this morning or if you're newer around here, I hope that these uh, three reasons will be a way to tell you a little bit more about our church. We're preaching the book of Leviticus because number one, your pastors are committed to preaching the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that fit well on coffee mugs or on house decor from Hobby Lobby. Okay which I love both of those, by the way, okay? Now, when I say that phrase, the whole counsel of God, that comes from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. Paul had served the church in Ephesus for three years, and he was preparing to leave, and so he calls all the elders of the church together, and he wants to talk to them, and as he's talking to them, one of the ways that he describes his ministry is that he says to them, over these three years, I did not shrink back in declaring to you the whole counsel of God didn't shrink back. Paul's saying to the Ephesian elders, hey, I did not hold back any biblical truth from this church. Everything that is there, I told you. I said it. I believe when Paul says this in Acts chapter 3, he's serving as a model for pastors. I believe that we as pastors, all pastors everywhere should imitate the Apostle Paul. They should Im- imitate this in the Apostle Paul, which doesn't mean, just to clarify, that doesn't mean that we necessarily should expound every single verse of the entire Bible, but it does mean that we should give the full picture of the entire Bible. We shouldn't hold anything back. We should preach every part of Scripture. We as a church, we want the whole hog of what God has said. Everything that God has said, everything that God has said to us, we want to hear it. We want to know it. 
right? That's what this commitment is about. And because of that commitment, it has been our practice as a church since the start of our church to alternate back and forth between preaching an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book. And in the fall of 2015, our first fall season together, we preached through the Minor Prophets. And then the next fall in 2016, we began preaching through the book of Genesis. And since that time, we have spent some part of the last six years working our way through the first five books of the Old Testament. And I think if you count Minor Prophets and our series through the Pentateuch and the Psalms, I think that we as a church have preached more sermons from the Old Testament than the New Testament. I think, I think, I'll go check that out. We're committed to the whole counsel of God. And we've been preaching through the whole counsel in the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, or also called the Torah. And last year we finished the book of Exodus, and Leviticus is the book that comes after Exodus. And so here we are. By God's grace, here we are in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is part of the whole counsel of God, including several verses that you will never hang up in your house, okay? For example, such as Leviticus chapter 3 verse 9, which says, then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to Yahweh its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. (laughs) I'm guessing that's no one's life verse in here, right? Okay. These are instructions for the priest on how to offer a lamb as a peace offering. It's not a very popular part of scripture. And yet, this is something we can't ignore. There's a reason behind every word that is said in Leviticus chapter three, verse nine. All of the details in these sacrifices mean something. And at the very least, verses like Leviticus 3.9 remind us that when we read the Bible, we are reading primary source material. Now, you, you may have heard this phrase before, a, a primary source. It's a research term and just using, you know, for all different types of resource. But I just want to focus here for a minute on the field of ancient literature. Okay, in that field of ancient literature, there are basically two types of books in the world. There are books about books, books that interpret other books, and then there are books themselves, like the books themselves, the primary sources. And when we read the Bible, just so we know, we are reading the book itself. We are reading the primary source, which means for the people who made these sacrifices, this is the book that they had. This is what they read. This is what was read to them. 
So when we're reading the Bible, when we're reading the book of Leviticus, we are not reading a book about the book that they use for their sacrificial system, but we are reading the actual thing itself. Like this is it. This is what they had. We are reading the authoritative instructions that God gave Israel and the Levites. And they needed to know how to cut the lamb. They needed to know what to do with the kidneys and the fat and the entrails. And so this book tells them, this primary source explains it to them. And yes, of course, it's foreign to us. Yeah, it's a, it's a little weird at times. But that's actually good for us. It's good for us because it reminds us that the Bible is not meant to be a feel-good therapeutic device. But the Bible is the word of God that tells us an ancient, ancient, ancient story of which, like Josiah said, we're part of it. (laughs) We're part of this story. And so think about it like this. The Bible is our book. It's our book. It belongs to the church. Christian, the Bible is your book. And so have your life verse, have your favorite verse, hang your favorite verse up in your house, post your favorite verse on your Instagram. Do it. I love it. We should do it, okay? Do all of that. But also remember at the same time that this book and its whole counsel is bigger than us. It's outside of us, and we bow before it. We humble ourselves before this word, this book, and all this mystery, and in all this wonder, we, we submit ourselves to this word, this word of God. We remember that the book of Leviticus reminds us of that, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we're preaching it. Second reason while we're preaching Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is indispensable background to the meaning of the gospel. There are several concepts fundamental to the gospel that I think we just assume because we we, we know what they are because they're part of the gospel, but we seldom stop and wonder where did these concepts come from? Concepts like sacrifice, substitution, forgiveness, acceptance. These are all concepts that are fundamental to the gospel. They define the gospel. These concepts define the gospel, and they are concepts, all of them, that are established in the book of Leviticus. When the New Testament uses these concepts, as the New Testament does often, The New Testament always has their Leviticus meaning in mind. In fact, one commentator I read said that the book of Leviticus is the basis of Christian faith and doctrine. This commentator said that, in fact, the New Testament book of Hebrews, the Hebrews, we love the book of Hebrews, we're going to preach it next year. The New Testament book of Hebrews is actually a commentary on Leviticus. 
That's how big a deal Leviticus is. We simply could not understand the person and work of Jesus without the book of Leviticus because everything that the New Testament writers say about Jesus, they say with Leviticus in mind. Make sense? And so throughout this series, I think you'll find that if you know the gospel, you're gonna know more about the book of Leviticus than maybe you thought. But then also, I think after we really engage this book more, after we really engage the book of Leviticus, I believe it will help us see the cross of Christ in more vivid color. It's even possible that we might find that before understanding Leviticus, we've only been seeing the gospel in black and white. What if that were so? What if we come to find that the gospel this whole time has been a 3D movie, but we've been watching it without 3D glasses? Do they still make 3D movies? You guys guys been to a 3D movie, you put the glasses on, whoa, and it's like, have you seen how silly people look when they watch 3D movies? What if in the book of Leviticus, We're putting on 3D glasses. And what if the gospel, what if we do that? I believe that's possible. That's one of the reasons why we're preaching this book. Third reason why we're preaching this book, we as a church want to go deeper in our experience of life with God which comes by our going deeper into the truth of God. There is more for us in the Christian life. There is more maturity in Christ. There is more assurance of faith. There is more nearness that we can experience with God. There is more of the Spirit's power for us. I believe that. God has more for us, church. But none of it will come apart from our knowing more about God. We have to know more of him, know more of him. And when I say the word no, I, I don't mean no as in we're just filling our heads with information. Not interested in that, okay? I'm not preparing you for a Bible quiz, okay? That's not what we're doing. It's not about information. But I mean knowing as in know with a supernatural faith. I'm talking about the kind of knowledge that will transform your life, that kind of knowledge. We need the kind of knowledge that we might not, we might not really experience, we might not really realize except through suffering. Let me explain. As, as many of you heard and as uh, Jordan just prayed, last Sunday afternoon, after a five-year battle with cancer, Jen Jacobs finished her race and entered into the joy of her master. Amen? That's what happened. And Jen and her husband, Josh, were founding members of our church way back in 2015. Founding members, we love their family. And 
Several weeks ago, the Jacobs hosted a group of friends in their home to mark the five-year anniversary of Jen's diagnosis. They, they knew the prognosis, they knew that the end would soon come, and so they had friends gather to mark the anniversary of when she began her battle and all those who've been beside her along the way. And there were some women of our church who were there at that gathering. And something that Josh said at that gathering was reported back to me, and I have permission to share it with you, okay? But at one point, as everyone was gathered together for prayer, group in their home, about to pray, Josh said to them, quote, everything we have learned and read and believed and been told about Jesus has been true. All of it. It should be our dream in life to say that. Amen? That's the dream right there. That's the dream to say that. See, Josh, he knew the truth about Jesus. He, he knew things. He knew things, see, he knew, he knew things. And then, with him knowing things about God, God called his family down a path where what he knew went deeper. The Jacobs could not walk the path if they didn't know the truth. And they could not know the truth more deeply if they did not walk the path. And so our late sister Jen and our brother Josh are models for us. They're models for us that what we know about God matters. It, it really matters. What we know about God, about the gospel, about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done, about his promises, what we know about him matters. And so that's why we're preaching the book of Leviticus, because we need to know more. We need to know more. We need to really know more of God. We need to know more of his truth. And the book of Leviticus will help us. This book will help us know more. So that's why we're preaching the book of Leviticus. Three reasons there. A lot of stuff to pray about there, a lot of things to expect in the coming weeks, eight weeks counting today, but I pray you're gonna stick with us, okay? Are we ready for the book of Leviticus? Amen? Amen? All right. Now what I wanna do, it's like a part two of the sermon, like a second sermon. I wanna give you three themes from the book of Leviticus that I just wanna make sure we're, we're crystal clear about. I'm saying all these things by way of introduction. We're gonna see these themes literally on every single page, I think, of Leviticus. But I wanna slow down and focus on each of them because these are things that we just can't, aff we, we can't afford to take for granted. Like we just have to know these things and, and hold these things in our minds as we read this book. Here's the first theme of the book of Leviticus, is that God is holy. He's a holy God. You have to know this. Leviticus chapter one, verse one again. Yahweh called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That's a simple verse. But wow, is there some weight behind that? Remember that before we read verse one here in Leviticus, we're bringing with us 
everything that we've learned about God in Genesis and Exodus, right? Remember, remember, this is part of this story. It's part of the pen. So we're bringing everything we've learned about God in Genesis and Exodus to Leviticus when we read this first. And if we were to look back and think on Genesis and Exodus, I think there are two main things that we've learned about God in those books. The first is that we've learned that God is Yahweh, the creator of all things, sovereign over all things. We see this in Genesis at the beginning, so important. Genesis 1 to 11, Genesis 1 begins, uh, in the beginning, there was God. God, that's the book, God. (laughs) And then we see everything else that's here, all of this is here because of him. Everything else that exists, exists because of God. God spoke the world and every living thing into existence with his words. The sun, the moon, the stars, ants, ladybugs, kangaroos. God created it all. He made it all. And then in the book of Exodus, knowing this about God, we see in the book of Exodus at the burning bush that you know, God calls Moses to lead his people to freedom, lead them from slavery to freedom, out of Egypt, and at the burning bush, when, when God calls Moses to do this, Moses wants to know God's name. So there's this God who's a creator, he's powerful, he's sovereign, Moses is like, what's, what's your name? And he wants to know his name because Moses understands that when he goes to the people and speaks on behalf of God, they're gonna, gonna wanna know, well, what's, the God, what's his name who told you to do this? And so Moses says to God, what do I tell them? They're gonna wanna know your name, what do I say to them? And then God says in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. That's his answer. Moses says, what's your name? God says, I am who I am. Which means God is saying that he is irreducibly himself. He is saying that he exists outside of our preconceived categories. He is subject to no one. When he says his name as I am, he is saying I am who I am and I will be who I will be. There is no other way to define me other than in terms of myself, I am. That's what God says. And then that's where the name Yahweh comes from. The God who is, the I am. Yahweh is the self-determining one. He's wholly beyond the reach of any comparison or class. Yahweh is the creator of all things and he is absolutely sovereign. He is dependent upon nothing. We learn this in Genesis and Exodus. And then second we learn in these two books that this God who is holy has called a people to himself. He wants a people. The sixth day of creation, the pinnacle of creation, God created Adam and Eve. And God gives Adam and Eve this important job. They're made in his image, made in his likeness for the purpose of imaging him. Adam and Eve were created to to worship God and to enjoy God in his presence in the Garden of Eden. And as they imaged him, and as they were fruitful and multiplying, then it means they were to extend the garden out to the rest of the world until the world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the idea. The glory of God everywhere was the mandate given to Adam and Eve, but through sin that was lost. And rather than Adam and Eve extend the garden, they were actually exiled from the garden. They were separated from the presence 
and nearness and closeness of God, but God made a promise that he would send a redeemer. He would send a son, a child, who would, be, who would be born of a woman to redeem humanity from sin, and this son would come through a flesh and blood family tree through the line of Abraham. This is Genesis 12, verse three, when God called Abraham, and he promised Abraham that through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and then that promise goes from Abraham to Isaac, and from Isaac to Jacob, and then to all the people of Israel who ended up finding themselves enslaved in Egypt, but then God called Moses to set the people free from Egypt, and in this rescue mission, Yahweh says, Exodus chapter six, he says, to Israel, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Well, do you hear that? Like, God will have a people. They will be his people and he will be their God. That was the point of the exodus. Through amazing signs and wonders, God showcased his power over the world he created and set his people free. He set them free. And in Exodus chapter 19, God comes down on Mount Sinai and he calls his people to himself. If you remember, God calls his people to come up the mountain and have fellowship with him. He says to them, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples and you shall be a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation if they could just obey his voice, if they could just trust him. Can they do what God says? And in Exodus 19, when the trumpet blasts, can they come up to the mountain where God is? Can it be like the garden again? And we find out, no, it can't because the people are too afraid. The people lack faith and so they wanted Moses to stand in for them and Moses did. And so then came the law, which was only by the grace of God because the people, they could not be in the presence of God like in the garden. They needed some kind of buffer and so God designed that, God provided that. This is all of Genesis and Exodus. And what we learn, by the time we get to Leviticus, what we learn is that God, Yahweh, the sovereign creator of all that is, this God who is inexhaustibly powerful, this God of whom there is no one like him, he does not depend on anything. Instead, all things are dependent upon him. This God who is holy, 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 is a God who has a people. So we see that God's holiness, it means that he is transcendentally separate from everything else. But it doesn't mean that he is in any way distant and removed. He's not. Because there's just people, there, there's a people. He made these people. He wants this people. And what we see over and over again in Genesis and Exodus is that in God's revelation of his self, in God's revelation of his holiness, he is moving toward people. Yahweh is the Holy One 
in your midst. This is amazing. Genesis and Exodus. We're just talking Genesis and Exodus. We learn there, there is a holy God who has a people, a people. And there's another theme now in Leviticus we need to talk about. Holy God is one theme. The second theme is this people, not just a people, a sinful people. Holy God, now sinful people. Now we know sin's a problem. We know that since Genesis 3. We see this in the days of Noah. We see this in the story of Jacob and his sons. We see this in Israel's grumbling even after God set them free from Egypt. Sin is a problem. It's a huge problem. But within the Pentateuch, the first five books, the most vivid example of human sin is in Exodus 32 in the story of the golden calf. This was Israel's fall story. This was Israel's fall story like Adam's in Genesis 3. Remember Yahweh again in Exodus 19, he invites his people up the mountain to have fellowship with him. They were too afraid. They wanted Moses to stand in as a mediator. And so God in his kindness, he designed this whole plan for ongoing mediation. He would dwell among his people through the Ark of the Covenant, which would be housed in the most holy place, which was separated from the holy place by a veil, which was all part of this larger structure called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle would be administered by Levites, a whole, a whole tribe of mediation who would intercede for the people and mediate the presence of God. This is how Yahweh the Holy One would be with his people. This was the way forward. This was the way forward. Grace, grace, this whole thing. And Yahweh is telling Moses all of this on Mount Sinai. Meanwhile, as Yahweh, at the same time that he is telling Moses on the mountain, all these plans for the tabernacle. Down below the mountain, Aaron and the people of Israel make for themselves a golden calf to worship in the place of Yahweh. It is stunning, it is stunning that this happens. They bring all of their gold, they've just been rescued from Egypt. They bring all of their gold together. They put it together and they fashioned together a statue of a baby cow and they say, this is the one who rescued us. This is our God. We're going to worship this thing, this created, this image of a created thing. It's the, it's, I think it's the worst moment in the Old Testament because here what happens is we see that the people of Israel were not just afraid of Yahweh, they didn't just lack faith, but they are bent away from Him, right? They are a stiff-necked people. They have rocks for hearts. They are rebellious. They're toxic. These are a grossly sinful and depraved people. And we finish the book of Exodus on this note. That's how Exodus basically ends. And so based upon what we know from Genesis and Exodus, we have now this question that's beginning to build. How can Yahweh, how can this sovereign creator of all things who is holy, how can this holy God be near and accessible to this kind of sinful people? How will this work? How can this work? That's the question that Genesis and Exodus leaves us with. 
And the book of Leviticus goes, I can answer that. Let me, let me explain. That's what Leviticus is doing. Leviticus is answering that question, and that brings us now to the third theme, holy God, sinful people, substitutionary sacrifice. Sacrifice is the third theme. It's the most obvious theme, I think, in the book of Leviticus. It's just absolutely undeniable. It's not just a theme that we see repeated, but it's actually literally the center of the book in terms of structure. And I debated about this, but I just think it's too fascinating not to mention, okay? So bear with me for a few minutes here. Let's back up and think about the structure. I, I literally just backed up, sorry. The, the literary structure of the, of the Pentateuch, okay? There are five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five books. Now of these five books, they create a chiasm. And we've talked about chiasms before, but you look first at the bookends. You look at Genesis and you look at Deuteronomy, these bookends, and guess what? They're similar, these books. Both of these books end the same way. Genesis ends with Jacob, who's about to die. He makes a speech to his sons and he blesses his sons. Well, Deuteronomy ends with Moses, who is about to die. And guess what? Moses makes a speech to the tribes of Israel and he blesses them. So the bookends, Genesis and Deuteronomy, are very similar. And then we go a book inside, Genesis, Exodus, right? Leviticus, Numbers, so take Numbers, Exodus and Numbers. We're inside Exodus and Numbers. And lo and behold, these books also are very similar. The book of Exodus is about being set free from Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai and getting instructions for the tabernacle and beginning to build the tabernacle. A lot of talk about the tabernacle in Exodus. And well, the book of Numbers is the people preparing to leave Mount Sinai and they're having to make the tabernacle mobile. So there's a lot of talk about the tabernacle in Numbers and there's all kinds of amazing similarities between Exodus and Numbers. The point is the books are similar. So Genesis and Deuteronomy are similar. Exodus and Numbers is similar. And that leaves Leviticus, which is right in the middle, which is not similar at all, right? It's very different, a very different book. You got these books that are similar, and then you got this book, Leviticus, which is about bloody sacrifices. And within the book of Leviticus, there are these three major parts. The first part in chapters one to seven answer the question, how can we draw near to God? The very last part, chapters 17 to 27, answer the question, how can we stay near God? How can we draw near? How can we stay near? And then right in the middle of Leviticus in chapters 8 to 16, this middle section answers the question, how can we be pure before God? And in that section, which is the direct middle of the book of Leviticus, the culmination of that section is chapter 16. In chapter 16, is the day of atonement. That was the the big sacrifice of all sacrifices. The annual sacrifice, the day of atonement, the sacrifice of all sacrifices, and it's the direct middle, the, the, the direct center 
of the book of Leviticus. Which means, remember this? Chapter 16 is the center of Leviticus. Leviticus is the center of the Pentateuch. So, so what this means is that the center of the center of the center, like the very heart, the very heart of the Pentateuch is sacrifice, atonement. It's the one day of a year, the one day throughout the year when all the sins of the people and all the pollution because of those sins is atoned for and removed by the death of a substitute. So that big question, the big question that's been formed in Genesis and Exodus, how can this holy God be near and accessible to this sinful people? Leviticus answers that question and says, somebody has to die in your place. It's amazing. It's amazing. This book is amazing. And everything that we read about sacrifice, substitution, and atonement, everything we read about this in the New Testament takes its cues from the book of Leviticus. And I could, there's a lot more. I cut, Pastor David Matt, I cut about 500 words of the sermon. There's a lot more I could say and want to say, but we will say it. This is just an introduction, okay? This is just a start. We are just getting going, okay? Just getting started. But as we're moving on in this series, from today, seven sermons left, I want you to remember these three themes, these three things. Holy God, sinful people, substitutionary sacrifice. We remember these three things, and in this moment, we come now to this table. Some of you already know, I'm sure most of you know, at least you're gonna hear us say it a lot over the next several weeks, and hopefully we can show you this, but the book of Leviticus points to Jesus. <laughs> it's about him. Jesus is the sacrifice who died in our place. Jesus is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. And that's what we remember at this table. In fact, I, I think over the next several weeks that the Lord's table will take on a deeper meaning for us as we work through the book of Leviticus because what we do at this table, it's very Levitical, very Levitical. The, the bread here represents the broken body of Jesus and the cup here represents the shed blood of Jesus and they've been separated. And as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. We remember his death in our place and we look forward in hope to his coming. And so this morning, if you belong to Jesus, if you trust in him, if you have fellowship with him, this is a meal about fellowship. If you have fellowship with Jesus, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. We invite you now to give Jesus thanks. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.